jumping off my Chinese house. Two ducks in my spyglass, furry as a mouse. It's a sweet nature, a sweet nature thing. It's a sweet nature, a sweet nature thing. It's a Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu, a podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. Episode 207, Sweater Weather, Sunday, October 14th, 2018. I'm your host, Sarah. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate. The Yarns at Yin Hu podcast has a Facebook page, and it's available on iTunes. Each time I record an episode, I put show notes, photographs, and links to things I talk about on my website, yarns at yinhu.com. Today's episode features the following segments. The back porch, the front porch, ever-expanding skill set, and we'll start with some news and events. Since I recorded the last episode, I have released the pattern for Humblebee Mitts. It's available on Ravelry, and the pattern is also available in printed format at Distal Fink Fibers booth if you attend any of the events where she will be vending. Also at Foster Sheep Farms booth, she'll be vending at Rhinebeck and at Hope's Favorite Things in Richmond, PA. And all of these uh, proprietors have samples in their booth or their shop, as well as printed patterns. One of my objectives in designing this pattern was to inspire impulse purchases of farm yarns. Um, I was reading, I always tend to read the Ravelry threads for Rhinebeck when it gets close because I just love to hear how people are so excited and see the questions they ask about the festival and what they're going to shop for and it's kind of a way of getting excited for the festival and also reminding myself of some some tips that veteran festival goers usually post and there's always this you know, disclaimer, I guess, when people are listing their shopping objectives, and that is, oh, if I see a beautiful skein of sock yarn, I'm certainly going to buy it. And I would like to expand that to a beautiful skein of farm yarn. And I think sometimes it can be difficult to know how much to buy or what to do when you're considering farm yarn. And one of the reasons people default to a skein of sock yarn is they know they can knit socks with it. Well, you can knit mitts with it. You can knit the humblebee mitts. And I was really entranced with some of the farm yarns that I use to knit my samples. So I knit with some beautiful um, Romney merino blend from distal fink fiber company 
and it's with fiber that's grown on her parents' Mulberry Hill farm and milled nearby. It's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I also use some of Carol's, two different blends of Carol's. One is a Romney Wensleydale cross. It's a fingering weight yarn that I held double to knit the mitts and it does some really beautiful things to the stitch pattern. And then I used her brand new blend Blythe, which combines her sheep with a bit of blue-faced Lester. And this was has been milled at um, the Batten Kill Fiber Mill and is cozy and soft and luscious. And then the other yarn that I used, the fourth yarn that I used to knit samples is from Hope's Favorite Things. She acquired some Montadale sport yarn and she dyed it in her redware colorway. And this is considerably lighter weight than I had in mind when I was designing the pattern, but they knit up really nice. They're not as warm, obviously. They're more of a maybe a texting mitt, something for cool rather than cold weather. Uh, but the pattern knit up really beautifully in those and all on U.S. four needles. So it's a pretty versatile pattern that will fit a range of sizes. And as you're knitting, if you've knit the humblebee socks, as you're knitting, the bees are flying up toward you. As you knit the mitts, the bees are flying away from you. So it's a little bit different way to work the stitch pattern. These have a ribbed cuff and they are ribbed around the thumb and around the fingers where you close the mitt. They also have a thumb gusset, and on the gusset is this really sweet skep design that's made of pearl stitches. So it's like a sweet little addition to your bees. They have a little hive. I'd like to thank some folks who helped me with this pattern. Tech editor Ellen Silva, as well as my wonderful test knitters, Amy, Mary Beth, Rachel, and Holly, who gave excellent feedback and reported that they had a lot of fun knitting the mitts and confirmed that they knit up quickly. And I'd also like to thank Samuel for helping me with the photo shoot for these mitts. We had a lot of fun and were rewarded with a snack of freshly made scones afterwards. I'm very grateful for yarn support from Megan, Sean, and Colleen of Distal Fink Fibers and Mulberry Hill Farms, to Carol of Foster Sheep Farm, and to Hope of Hope's Favorite Things. You can see samples, as I said, at all the booths. Carol will have a very special display at her Foster Sheep Farm booth, uh, which is Building 31 at Rhinebeck. It's way up on the hill, upper left. She's in the last building to your left, all the way at the back, just before you would get to the animal barns. They're right behind her. And I encourage you to squish and to pick up some farm yarn and knit your own pair of humblebee mitts this fall. Thank you.
Last Saturday was the first session of the Fleece to Finished Object course that I'm teaching at Hope's Favorite Things. And it was a great start to a four-session series. We got to know a beautiful Jacob Fleece from Spring Hills Farm, and we worked on some different handwork techniques, spinning and working with fiber, how to scour fiber, and really started to get invested in a slow version of this making process. So I'm really eager to see all of my students again next month and to continue our journey together. There were a number of people who had expressed interest in a class like this, but couldn't commit to the dates in the fall. So Hope and I have conspired to work the calendar and offer a spring set of dates. And that will start in February and continue through June. The way the Fleece to Finished Object series works is that there are four formal sessions with instruction and so on, all the things that you would expect in a class. And then participants are invited to join in a last Saturday spin-in at the close of their session. So about a month goes by and then come and join all of the spinners who get together at Hope's shop at the end of the month and sort of show off what we've made and celebrate uh, the achievement of working with fiber. The spring series begins in February. There are class sessions in February, March, April, and May and participants are invited to join in the last Saturday spin-in in June. So we hope that if you're interested, these dates will be appealing to you. And if you'd like to sign up, you can contact the shop. I'll put links to everything in the show notes. One of the things we were talking about in the first session, our, our conversation just ranged very widely Uh, as people shared their experience and asked a lot of questions. And we got on the topic of flax and Hope and I were uh, relating our tale of the blistering hot day um, at the farm and working with flax. And I was reminded of a message I received on Ravelry that I would really like to share with you because it provides some additional insight into flax harvesting. This message is from Yarn Dream, Lynn, who's from Telemark, Norway. And she has just a personal fascination with flax, has read very widely on the topic, and has even endeavored to grow some flax of her own. And she wanted to contribute a note about flax harvesting and that it's not typically harvested with a scythe. It's not typically cut, she explains. And this is from her, her message to me on Ravelry. It is usually pulled up by the roots. Having a cut end during redding would allow moisture to get into the stem and the rate of disintegration of the unwanted stem, 
versus bast fibers would then differ along its length. This would mean that in order to properly ret the entire length, the cut end would ret faster and result in weaker, more rotted fibers by the time the entire length had retted. So you would essentially be shortening your fibers. So they left the root on to keep that system closed and to allow more even retting along the length of the shaft, thus preserving the length of the linen fibers. Isn't that interesting? So she surmises why uh, there might be some misunderstanding about why you would cut uh, flax rather than pull it up with the roots. And she suggests that as different people with differing amounts of knowledge about past practices uh, worked with flax, they may have started confusing flax that was meant for linen production and flax that was harvested for seed and just started using some of the same practices for both, which I think is a is a very logical explanation for what may have happened. It could have also just been easier to do. And so, you know, farmers would resort to the easy thing for the harvest um, if it increased the speed of their harvest and so on. I'd like to thank Lynn for taking the time to write such a detailed explanation of her findings and to provide me with some additional insight on a topic that really does interest me. I think it takes a lot of time and it takes a certain amount of grace to share something like that. And ultimately, I feel like the fiber community would be a much better place if we all felt that we had the liberty to make a gentle correction if someone's assumptions or their details were lacking in some way. I think it's always an opportunity to learn. It takes effort on the part of those of us who are the most experienced in the field. And sometimes it seems like new information may be unwanted. But I think one of the reasons that I started getting involved in the fiber community and why I continue to have such a passion for the fiber arts is it seems like there are endless opportunities for learning and it's really the learning the skill and learning how to work with materials and respect them that is the most powerful thing for me and so any additional insights that I can get um, I'm so happy to have them and it's also a reminder to me that I need to keep my mind and my ears open because you never know where additional information or a richness of understanding will come from. And it's important not to be dismissive. So thank you, thank you, Lynn. And thank you to everyone who has commented about the Flax episode. It seemed to get a lot of attention and be a source of fascination. So uh, I look forward to 
deeper investigation of that as time goes on. The Back Porch. Lovage is complete, and I am so extremely happy with the finished product. I've never put as much energy and effort into the knitting of a sweater. I think I've put significant energy and effort into um, processing fleece and dyeing for the Rhinebeck project I did last year. Um, and I used Shetland fleece in the color work yoke. And that was significantly more hours in the making. It took me a year to make that garment. And I made this sweater in 40 days. And yet the attention to detail and the mental energy required to get all of the aspects of this sweater exactly the way I wanted them were considerable. The sweater is Lovage, a design by Marie Wallen. I fell in love with it because some of my podcast knitting friends have made this sweater and I wanted I wanted my own. I just love some of the beautiful color work motifs. It's not just a color work yoke. The color work starts on the body of the sweater and continues up to the neckline. And it's significantly different than other sweaters I've knit because it is a bottom-up construction. And I did follow that. I didn't reverse it. I was tempted to, but um, I decided to follow that bottom-up construction but make some modifications so that the arms were longer and the join happened later in the color work than in the original sweater. And so to do that, I needed to change some of the charts around. I need to think very carefully about stitch counts. And I also did some shaping uh, to the sweater in the body and some short row, two different sets of short row shaping around the neckline, one in just the center back and one that goes almost all the way around the neck of the sweater. I used my favorite tubular cast-on and bind-off for the waist, the hem, and the sleeves, and also the neckline. I included a split hem on this sweater as well as the one purl stitch on each side that just gives it a little bit of structure. I wish I had done that on the sleeves as well but I didn't. Um, I'm really happy with the way the color work resolves at the seam. The seam in my sweater is just behind the right shoulder and looking at it, I'm looking at it right now, um, looking at it, it's very difficult to tell uh, where uh, each new colorwork motif has begun. When I was finished with the knitting, I tried it on, was so happy, and then I took it off and it ended up inside out on my bed. And then I started thinking about all of the ends in what I was going to do. And it, it just looked like a monstrous task. 
But I consulted Sarah and Kareen and Emily and found that tying off ends inside a color work sweater or any kind of garment is a standard practice and I didn't need to weave them all in. I could tie them off and cut them. Uh, I think Lisa, um, Saratoga Knitting, has even mentioned that she just trims them and leaves them because after a little bit of wear, that sort of felts on the inside of your sweater and the ends, they're not going anywhere. With this toothy, wonderful yarn, uh, everything just kind of fills in and you don't have to worry too much about the ends. So that was a relief (laughs) and took me, you know, about a half an hour as opposed to like three and a half hours to resolve that. And I've just been admiring the sweater because it's been too warm uh, up until this weekend. It's really been too warm to even consider wearing it. And this weekend has turned decidedly chilly Uh, It's really sweater weather. And so I'm debating whether or not to wear this sweater before Rhinebeck (laughs) or wait for its inaugural um, outing at Rhinebeck. I'm just not sure. I just spend a lot of time admiring it. Like I can't believe I did all of that knitting. And I'm so pleased with the colors I chose and the choices that I made about the color work motifs. Some of the motifs are so beautiful that I just want to use them in other things. I have some yarn left over and I think it would be really neat to make a hat and mitts that use some of the the motifs. Uh, Marie Wallen's patterning is just, it's enchanting. I think that's, that's the overall effect I get from the sweater. It's It's an enchanting color work design. So I'm really excited to wear it. And I think this sweater, this is the sweater that will last me a lifetime. Since I completed Lovage, I have also decided to use up the yarn that I've purchased at Rhinebeck last year because I have kind of a little rule for myself to keep my stash in check that I won't buy yarn or fiber at a festival if I haven't used up the yarn or the fiber that I purchased the previous year at the same festival. Things need to get used and if not then I really need to hold um, purchases until I use things up. And so one of the purchases that I made was a bunch of lamb's pride wool to make a felted bag. I purchased leather, beautiful leather handles at a booth in one of the buildings. I don't remember the vendor. And it came with a pattern. And then I knew that I didn't have a large quantity of yarn for felting. So I picked up some some Lands Pride in three different colors that I wanted. And I have since knit the bag. The felting of said bag still needs some work. I 
took it over to Hope's shop and we put it through its paces in the washer and the dryer, but it's a front-loading washing machine and I don't think it has that much agitation. And it also spins the items almost bone dry, so they weren't very damp when they went into the dryer and I think that also impeded the felting. This is an 85% wool, 15% mohair blend. So I thought it would felt when you look at it, but it's going to take a little more effort. I could hand felt it. That's another idea. Uh, But right now I'm just sort of letting that sit aside and I will pick it up later. I want to felt the bag and I also want to line it with a canvas lining and pockets before I sew on the straps so that it's a really sturdy, durable tote bag that will take me through many, many seasons. The front porch. While I was on the home stretch of the Lovage sweater, I gave a lot of thought to what would be next on my needles And I've decided to cast on my Hog Island hand-spun, hand-dyed yarn for a poncho. I'm using the Church Mouse Yarns and Tees Easy Folded Poncho design with modifications. I think I've read every one of the over 3,000 project notes that there are on Ravelry in order to determine my path forward for this poncho. And it may be that I knit a poncho-sized swatch and have to rip it out and try again. But it's okay, because I love knitting with this yarn. It's so spongy and springy, and I love the beautiful indigo color that I got from hand-dyeing. So I've cast on 99 stitches with a provisional cast-on, And I'm knitting this poncho in a knit four purl one rib. My plan is to use the join method. So knit about 24 inches of this panel, unpick the provisional cast on, join the ends together, and then continue knitting around all just about 200 stitches until I'm out of yarn and perhaps change the ribbing just a little bit. have sort of like a little jog in the ribbing so that there's uh, a border with a bit of a different rib to it. My hope is that I get something cozy and substantial. I don't have a ton of yardage. Um, I have about 800 yards of this yarn. I'm using US size 7 needles, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, I'm hoping I can have a poncho on the first take, but that may not be the case since I'm making so many adjustments and modifications. The other project I'm working on is a pair of socks using one of my favorite sock yarns, Northumberland Sock Yarn from Foster Sheep Farm. Carol dyes this U.S. made superwash merino blend herself, and I just, I love her dyeing. I can't wait to pick up more of this yarn when I visit her booth this coming weekend. Uh, 
She doesn't name her colorways, but this one is, it just says autumn all over it. It's wonderful plums and pinks, some peach and orange, some little pops of green, some grays and whites. I just love the way it's knitting up. It's incredibly variegated so that the color is changing every stitch or every few stitches. So I just chose a textured sort of waffly pattern uh, and I'm using um, traditional heel flap, heel turn, and a double gusset on the bottom of the foot with my usual ribbed arch section and I will be closing this with just sort of a regular toe. I hope I remember my toe decisions from the previous sock. Usually I knit socks in tandem, but for some reason I finished up the first sock and I only had the ribbing going on the second. So I really am knitting them more one at a time than is normal for me. So I hope I remember all of the things that I did. So I make two nicely matched socks because I do intend these for a gift. So once again, I am working on the Church Mouse Yarns and Tees Easy Folded Poncho with modifications in my own yarn. And I'm using Carol's Northumberland Sock Yarn to knit a pair of improvised textured socks for a gift. Ever expanding skill set. It was so hot this summer that we didn't enjoy a lot of baked goods and now that the weather is cooling I feel like I'm making up for lost time. <laughs> so in addition to the scones that I made for our little Humblebee Mitts photo shoot, I've been doing some other baking, including the impossible coconut pie. I posted a photograph of this on Instagram and got quite a bit of reaction everywhere from, oh, you know, reminiscing about grandmothers and aunts making this pie to Mary Beth saying, how have I never heard about this? I think it's kind of a niche thing. Uh, because the original recipe calls for Bizquick, and it's one of those magical, makes its own crust in the oven sort of things. You make this pie in a blender. So it's super, super quick. I actually prefer the version that is not made with Bizquick. It just has flour and some leavening agent, I forget which, and I whiz everything up in the blender, including some of the coconut. And then I put more of the coconut in the pie once I pour the batter into the pie plate. This is a great pie to make if you have a never-ending source of eggs because it's very eggy, custard-like texture. I think it's great for breakfast for that reason. And I also find that every time I make this pie, there's really too much batter for the pie plate. So I end up buttering a few ramekins and having some individual little custards as well as the pie. And the batter cooks very differently in a ceramic custard dish 
than it does in the pie plate. It's like two different textures. I really enjoy both. I might even prefer in the ramekins a little bit more. Um, but they're great for, I've taken them to work for lunch, uh, which is easier to transport than a slice of pie. So that's the impossible coconut pie. And the other thing I wanted to talk about this episode is a pumpkin bread recipe that I tried this week called, I can't stop eating this pumpkin bread. It's a food 52 recipe. And one of the distinguishing features is that it includes one grated apple in the batter. It also calls for two different types of flour. I did not have whole wheat flour, so I just used regular all-purpose flour. But I substituted coconut chips, the kind of large flakes of dried coconut, as opposed to the shredded coconut. Uh, I used them in my granola, and I had a big bag on hand and no walnuts. So I substituted the coconut chips for walnuts. I also added some freshly grated ginger to this. I would add even more next time. And I put some pumpkin seeds and cinnamon sugar on the top. This bakes up really nice. It's dense. It's moist. Um, it ha- It's not too sweet. I cut the sugar a little bit. And I think it's definitely going to go into a fall rotation at our house. So that's, I can't stop eating this pumpkin bread on the Food 52 website. I will link to all the things I've talked about in the show notes on my website, yarnsatyanhu.com. And I look forward to seeing you at Rhinebeck if you are attending. I do plan to attend the podcaster meetup following the Ravelry meetup. My understanding is that's about 1 p.m. on the hill. I will be going to Rhinebeck this year with Samuel. So if you see us, you get a chance to meet him as well. And I will also be meeting up with uh, friends from the Farm and Fiber Tour. We meet at Carol's booth at about 3 o'clock on Saturday, and then usually we sort of meander uh, out behind that barn and If it's nice weather, it's a great place to sit and chat and talk about our purchases and the almost year that's uh, gone by since we have met the last time. So I look forward to seeing friends and uh, to telling you all about my Rhinebeck adventures in the next episode. Have a great week. Bye. It's a suey nature, a suey nature thing. It's a mighty fine, a mighty fine nature thing. It's a mighty fine, a mighty fine nature thing. Oh, 
Thanks for listening. Music for this episode is so sweet. Music and lyrics by Samuel St. Thomas, performed by Bovine Social Club. Eat well and stay strong as you hone your post-apocalyptic skill set this week. Smile. Jump in the river naked and hug your country mind.